We are uh, completing today our series, uh, Live with the End in Mind. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and as we do that, we remember that it is Mother's Day, and uh, we're reminded that mothers, grandmothers, mother figures have the wonderful opportunity to help their children see the world in a certain way. Often mothers will impress on their children certain sayings, sayings that carry wisdom. Maybe you remember some sayings, you know, things that your mother repeated uh, as you were growing up. Maybe you learned them in English or another language. Uh, My mother, she taught me to be frugal. One thing that she would say quite often, a penny saved is a penny earned. So I can't walk by a penny without picking it up. Or live within your means. She helped me open my first bank account. She also taught me to work. So she would say things like, money doesn't grow on trees. Or she would say this. I think she translated this from low German. She would say, the day after tomorrow is Wednesday and we haven't done a thing yet. So if you wake up on Monday morning and that's the first thing you hear, it's just like, oh, wow, we're behind already. She uh, was and is a generous woman. She's 89 now, and um, one of the things that she laments is that she can no longer cook for people. She used to love being hospitable, having not only feeding the family, but having guests come in, and she can't do that anymore. But she continues to be a person of faith, a generous woman, and I'm thankful for her, and I'm sure you are thankful for your mother. Uh, Mothers... They have this wonderful opportunity, as I said, to help their children see the world in a certain way. And if a mother is a follower of Jesus, of course, she wants her child to see life in a biblical way, to live with the end in mind, uh, live with the end in mind in the serving, in the giving, in the speaking. Paul writes to Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but in the second, his second letter to Timothy, he writes this in chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Paul says to Timothy, I remember your wonderful grandmother Lois and your amazing mother Eunice. That was God's grace to you, Timothy. They had a sincere faith, and that faith now dwells in you. It resides in you. Be grateful. Maybe you didn't have a mother or a grandmother that followed Jesus, but I'm sure that as you have followed Jesus in the life of the church, God has graced your life with other women that have served as mothers or grandmothers. Or maybe it's an aunt or a cousin who has been that loving presence in your life. Be grateful. Who has invested in you? Thank God, thank them, and don't forget to tell them today that you, that you love them. Living with the end in mind, it's a way of seeing. Any worldview, it has as its core a set of beliefs. You have certain convictions, and based on those convictions, you think in a certain way. And your thoughts, they guide you in what you value, what's truly important to you. And that guides your behavior. 
When we talk about living with the end in mind, what we're seeking to do is live in a way that Jesus would have us live. Paul, as he writes this letter to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he's saying to Timothy and to the church that he shepherds that they are to believe in the gospel, and their belief in the gospel should shape the way that they live, including their relationship with money. Paul draws on the wisdom of sayings of Proverbs when he talks about finances. He says things like, you reap what you sow. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So in our text today, the text that we're going to read now, there are principles for all time and for every culture. Let's go to it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 6, he begins with but. He's making a contrast with what he has said previously. And so in the previous verses, he has just condemned those who teach that godliness is a way toward tremendous Wealth, they minister for money. And if you've been around Christianity for a while, you know that there are prosperity gospel preachers around the world. People who will teach you that Jesus wants you to be wealthy, that you can, your words actually have the creative power to bring you health and wealth. Just speak those words of faith. Their sayings are quite different from Paul's. They'll say things like, name it and claim it. Or blab it and grab it. I didn't make that up. They actually say that. Blab it and grab it. Just don't name and claim their private jets. I thought that was funny. Paul has two simple words for all of us. And then one for the rich. First point in your outline. The great secret to life is godliness with contentment. The great secret to life is godliness with with contentment. Godliness, yeah, it is a way to become rich, Paul says, if your godliness is accompanied by contentment. That is, you're satisfied with what God has graced you with. Paul emphatically refutes the health and wealth gospel here. There were philosophers in his days, Stoic philosophers, who would say that your life depends on your own inner strength. It depends on your own inner resources. They would say things like this. The art of living well is contingent upon self-control and self-sufficiency. Your life depends on you being strong, self-sufficient. They would not agree with what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17. God says this to the people of Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. God says, beware of saying that. The Stoic philosophers would have said, no, that's true. That's exactly it. It's by your power and your strength that you become wealthy. 
Paul just turns the tables on the Stoics in this passage that we read. He declares that genuine contentment doesn't come from self-sufficiency. It comes from Christ-sufficiency. Parallel passage in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul is content not because of some superhuman strength that he possesses. It's not that he's standing into the wind with a strong jaw. It's not that he's willing to face anything that fate will send his way because of his own inner strength. Nor is he content because circumstances are just so favorable. Paul hasn't walked into this unexpected financial windfall. It's not that he just wrote a surprise bestseller. No, he's content because of the mystery of godliness within him. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We just sang that song, We Believe. This verse that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit says something very, very similar. The mystery of godliness is Jesus within you. Colossians 1.27, Paul talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the secret to contentment is having Christ in your life. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, we pray that you would open your heart to him because he is the giver of life. He is the secret to contentment. Jesus is all Paul needs. Jesus is more than enough for him. Jesus enables Paul to live above both plenty and want. All of life, he says, from physical birth to spiritual rebirth to eternity, all of it is an act of grace by God. Contentment is not dependent on self, one's own inner strength, It's certainly not dependent on material wealth. Paul then gives two reasons to live in this godly, contented way. The first is in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. That verse, it expresses what we read in Job chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return So, first of all, Paul says something really obvious. We actually take nothing with us at death. And if we live with the end in mind, we remember that there is no trailer hitch behind a hearse pulling a U-Haul. But sometimes we live as if we will, will pull things with us into the next life. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus, he tells a story. He has just said to the crowd these words, one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And then he says in Luke 12, verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man that Jesus describes, he was focused on himself. He was focused on the now. And this is where the health and wealth gospel just gets it all wrong because it is focused on the now, on that which is fleeting. You probably have all heard about the Egyptian pharaoh, King Tut. King Tut, he died at 19 years of age in 1323 B.C., The interesting thing about his burial is that he was buried with 5,398 things, 5,398 artifacts, and among them, six gold-covered chariots. And so we are led to ask the question, why? Why would King Tut be buried with all that stuff? Well, he believed that he would carry that into the afterlife, that he would need it. That's what he believed. That was his way of seeing. And the sad reality is that all of his stuff is still here. So from an eternal perspective, material gain is simply irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Greed is irrational because money is fleeting. Remember the story I told last week about the loon there on the lake with me wanting all of the fish in the lake, including the fish that I was catching. What a crazy loon. Someone go counsel that loon. (laughs) But too often we are like that loon and we think that we're actually going to take fish with us. We enter life without possessions. We leave without possessions. It's just a very, very simple truth. But so often we live as if it's not true. Second Paul says in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Clothing there, it literally means covering. It can refer to clothing like this. It can refer to housing. Basically, Paul is saying, if we have life's essentials, we'll be content. Are we content? Are we satisfied? All of you are dressed, right? That's a good thing. We all have clothing on. Are you content with your clothing? If you're not fasting, you probably ate today. Are you content with what you ate? You slept somewhere. Are you content with the bed that you slept in? Are these basic essentials to life and Jesus within you enough? Are you content? Or are you striving for more? Contentment is actually very, very simple. After telling the story of the rich man and his big new storehouses, Jesus said this, Luke chapter 12, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And then he gives the examples of ravens that are are fed by God and lilies that are clothed by God. In verse 29, Jesus says, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek the Father, Jesus says, and he'll take care of you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, the Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Seek him. Seek to know him. Life is found in him. Now, unfortunately, our desires often take us in a different direction. The second point in your outline, the great snare of life is the desire to be rich. The great snare of life, Paul says, is the desire to be rich. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire or those who purpose to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who live to be rich, those who place wealth above all things, those who pursue wealth at all costs, they fall into a snare like prey. It's interesting that Paul uses the word snare. If you read his letters, you would come to the conclusion that the one who actually sets the snare for you is Satan himself. It's like a bear in the forest, and the bear sees a piece of meat hanging from a branch, obviously placed there by someone. Someone has set the snare, but the bear believes that that meat is desirous and so lunges for it grabbing it, thinking that it has life while it falls into the pit, prepared for it, falls to its death. Notice the progression in these verses. Notice where the process begins. It begins in your soul, in my soul. It begins with the desires of our hearts. If we give our soul to becoming wealthy, if that's where our passion lies, we become entrapped by our own irrational desires because wealth has absolutely nothing to do with contentment. Remember last week the survey that I mentioned done by McLean's. People across Canada were surveyed and they were asked, How much more do you have? Oh, sorry, how much more do you need in order to have enough? And the poor and the middle income and the rich all said 10 more, 10% more. Without Jesus in our lives, we always think we need a bit more in order to be content. We're plagued with affluenza in North America. And not just on this continent, actually around the world. And the virus is fed by advertising. We always need the latest upgrade. Pastor Ray, how can you live with an iPhone 5S? How can you survive with that device? How can you even make life work? It's so slow. You have to have the iPhone 10. It's, I was watching the ad this week. It it actually is new. The iPhone 10 is actually a new iPhone. It is the best, literally, this is what they say, the best by far ever for the next few months. 
But we're drawn into those things, right? The language that Paul uses here in 1 Timothy 6, it's the image of a a ship being dragged to the bottom of the ocean like the Titanic. Here's the thing. We have a worldview. We have beliefs, convictions. And they do determine how we think and what we value and how we live. But sometimes we're drawn into a certain way of behaving and it actually starts to form our beliefs. What do I mean by that? If you give your soul to being rich, you'll find yourself among people who have a different way of behaving. Along the way, as you hang out with them, as you work with them, your values will be compromised. And eventually, in order to sleep at night, you'll have to change your way of thinking, your believing. What was once unthinkable to you will become natural. It will become normal. And you'll say things like this to yourself. Well, this is just the way life works. It's just the way life works. That's why Jesus refers to money as a spiritual power in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And he says so clearly, you cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon there, uh, at its root, what it means is that in which you have confidence. It came to mean money, property, belongings. And so what Jesus is saying, you cannot say to yourself, I have confidence in God and I have confidence in money and things as well. I could hold these two things in my one heart. Jesus says you can't do that. You can't serve God and mammon. D.A. Carson wrote, and I think this is a profound statement, Attempts at divided loyalty betray not partial commitment to discipleship, but deep-seated commitment to idolatry. Attempts at divided loyalty betray not partial commitment to discipleship, but deep-seated commitment to idolatry. And so when I read a statement like that, or I reflect on what Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. I have to stop and ask myself, Jesus, is there anything other than you that I worship? Are there idols in my life? How do I know whether I'm running after other things? Whether wealth is taking a place in my soul that it shouldn't have? Well, we can ask ourselves some questions. This last week, what gave us our greatest joy? What were we passionate about this week? What were we most afraid of losing? Where did we give our best energy? And if the answer to any of those questions is something other than our relationship with Jesus, then we are probably worshiping something else. We're idolaters. Paul illustrates what he says in verse 9 with a proverb in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. That's not what he says. Nor does he say that material things per se are condemned. Some people taught that in his day. Nor does he say that greed is at the root of every evil known to humankind. No. But in verse 10, he does say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
because of their love for money, they have walked away from Jesus. They have walked away from the teachings of Jesus. They have pierced themselves with deeply felt pain. The language here is actually quite gruesome. It's graphic. What Paul is saying is these people that love money, they impale themselves. They, they drive stakes into their own hearts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion. And based on Jesus, I believe that to be true. Our hearts have room for one, only one, all-embracing devotion. Now, it's not only the rich that crave more. Sometimes the most ambitious are those who do not yet have Sometimes their desires lead them to unreasonable levels of debt. One of the things about our society is that debt has been normalized. We expect to just live in debt. We're fed the message of instant gratification daily. If you can make the payment, you can have it. And you need it now because you deserve the experience that this product offers to you. You can have the experience right now. And it'll give you a new identity. The advertising feeds us this message over and over again. One of the things about unreasonable levels of debt, it's, it's like sexual bondage. Financial bondage will keep you from actually serving Jesus as God intends you to. The bondage doesn't begin with unreasonable levels of debt. It begins in your soul with your desire for more. So it begins with you. And the way to freedom also begins with you. You can decide to walk away from unreasonable levels of debt. There is help for you. There are biblical principles to guide you. If you do need help, write just... Write it on the welcome card and leave it in the welcome center. We would be happy, happy to come alongside you and provide counsel. If you do find yourself in that place of debt, pray in this way. Lord, if, there's, if I'm bound by anything in the world of finance, please set me free. If I'm entrapped, reveal that to me. Puritan Cotton Mather, you know, he was, he was alarmed by what he was seeing in New England society. He, he realized that people were becoming more and more materialistic, even though the Christian faith had grown remarkably in New England. And this is what he said about the society that he observed. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. What did he mean by that? He observed in New England that authentic, when people actually gave their lives to Jesus, they changed. Bad habits would fall away. People would work harder. They would manage their lives better. And the natural outcome of that was social lift. It was economic prosperity. But tragically, he observed that in the second and the third generation the prosperity that came through faith in Christ by leaving all of those bad habits and actually investing in work. It devoured the Christian faith that had given them birth. It happened in Puritan New England. 
It happened in the ancient world in a city like Ephesus. It happens today in cities like Burnaby. So if we do find ourselves in a prosperous place or a prosperous moment, does the Lord have a word for us? Remember what Pastor Mark Birch said about two weeks ago. He was talking about, you know, who is rich in the world. And he said something that's very true. If we make more than $10,000 a year, then we are in the top 20% of the global population. If we make more than $50,000 a year, then we're in the top 1% of the global population. So what Paul says here for the rich is for most of us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says, hey, don't think too highly of yourself if you have more than others. He's talking about a mindset, a way of seeing life. Wealth can breed contempt, arrogance. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Don't set your hope on something as uncertain as earthly wealth. Set your hope in God. Wealth can, fla- can, can, can disappear in the flash of a second. Jeremiah says, no, God. Paul says, set your hope on God. And who is God? Well, it's right in our passage, chapter 6. Verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's who he is. Know him. He is the eternal God. He is the giver of life. He has eternity in his hands. Find your hope and security in the eternal God. Paul says, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Our Father does not provide grudgingly. He provides cheerfully, generously for our enjoyment and pleasure. He doesn't ask the rich here to exchange materialism for what's called asceticism. That was taught in Paul's day. Sometimes it's taught today. In other words, if you want to be spiritual, just abstain from everything. Just get rid of everything. Have nothing. Spirituality, it's like living in a miserly way with little, little joy. You should feel guilty if you enjoy something. That's not what Paul says. Paul says he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything, including our material wealth, is a gift of God's grace. It's the expression of God's gracious generosity. 
Acknowledging God as the giver of all good gifts, it frees us from pride. It frees us from the false security of riches. It frees us to live generously. Paul writes to the rich in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He repeats the same thing four times, so we'll get the point. If you are rich, give generously of your time, gifts, financial resources. Hold your possessions loosely. John Kelvin wrote, a man's opportunities to do good to others increase with the abundance of his riches. And what's the purpose of living in this generous way? Verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, for the coming age. We sang just a few minutes ago, he's coming back again. So you live with the end in mind, so that, the end of verse 19, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What a great incentive. Paul expects the wealthy to be generous so that they will have their treasure in heaven. And in saying that, he bases what he says on Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts always follow our treasure. Generous living. This is not to buy God off. This is not to earn salvation. It's just a living out of God's goodness. We're generous because God has been so good. Number three, the great security of life is found in eternal investment. The great security of life is found in eternal investment. Paul was concerned about the church in Ephesus. It was a missionary lighthouse. He refers to it in chapter 3, verse 15, as the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And he wanted it to remain that way. He didn't want it to be consumed by material wealth. He knew that a love for riches would lead to the death of that church. Now, a people that lives with the end in mind people that seeks God with all that they are, that generously shares God's good good gifts, will escape the fate of what Cotton Mather said. Remember what he said. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. May something very different be true of us. In our case, may this be true. Religion begat prosperity, or It would be better to say, faith in Jesus begat generosity, and the daughter invested securely for eternity. Amen? May that be true of us. Let's stand for prayer. Now, if you're here today and you you don't know Jesus and you're looking for new life, you're looking for contentment, the message for you today is that true contentment is found in Jesus alone. And uh, there's a prayer that we're going to post and would love to have you pray this. This is between you and 
Jesus. I'm going to read through it. God, I desire to know you personally. Please forgive me for leading my own life and rejecting your love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I ask you to forgive my sins. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. Thank you, God, for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, as Pastor Ron said earlier, there are people in the Welcome Center that would love to pray with you, would love to gift you with the Bible. And now I'd like to pray something for all of us. Father, we pray against the spirit of greed. We repent for the love of money. We confess that at times we are carried away by a desire for more. We repent for arrogance. We repent for self-sufficiency. We repent, Lord, for finding our contentment elsewhere. Oh God, by your grace, may we be rich in you. May we delight in the riches of your gospel. May we delight in our inheritance in you. May we live with the end in mind, renewed by your Holy Spirit. May we be set free from all that binds us, Lord. May we be rich in good deeds. God, may we invest generously, cheerfully, securely in your kingdom. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget to tell your mother that you love her. Have a great day.